This episode of Warp Five is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club; it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. And in the spirit of an enlightened future, TrekFan is absolutely free—not just free to play, but completely free. Find out more by visiting fm.trekfan.org. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for war. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me this week here on the NXO One, I have not one but two guests. Back from last week is Tyler Johnson. Hello, Tyler. Hey, everybody. You know, we set this up last week on the air, I think, didn't we? So here we did. We came through with another show together. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that's the way you're supposed to do it, <laughs> but pre- previews are fun. It's great. I think it's the first preview we've ever had. We're very open about it here on Warp 5. <laughs> yeah, it's also great to be in these new Warp 5 studios. Now that we're here every week, you know, it's uh, gorgeous and palatial. It's, it's a really nice place to be. Yeah, we got a little upgrade, a little bit of refit yeah. going there. Also joining us, another regular here on Warp 5, Tommy Kraft. Tommy, welcome back. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. Well, I'm glad to have both of you with me today to talk about one of the hot-button issues of Enterprise. When you talk to Star Trek fans who have problems with Enterprise, one of the things most often cited is the way the Vulcans are presented on the series. And Tyler, I know you've been wanting to talk about this for quite some time, and I always say, you know, we we kind of talk about them off and on in all of our other shows, and then we done our T'Pol show as well, but it's been a while, so I thought now is a good chance to come around and really tackle the Vulcans, but to do it in broad terms, so not so much to talk about T'Pol in particular or any character like that, but rather to talk about what we knew about the Vulcans coming into Enterprise, how they were presented on the show, what it is that ruffles the feathers of fans, and then how they change course as the show goes on. So, Tyler, you picked this topic, as I mentioned. Let's begin by talking about Vulcans as we knew them. So when you went into Enterprise for the first time and you have this preconceived notion of what Vulcans were, what was that notion? What were you expecting? Yeah, you know what? It's 90% Spock. I know there's a lot of other, there's been a lot of portrayals and characters and 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 uh, moments that have come up, but I, th- I think it all, it all revolves around Spock, who is... I mean, let's be honest, a half Vulcan. So 
Um, he's maybe not even the, the best representation of what Vulcans are and what they could be and what they aspire to be. Um, you know, he's he's conflicted. What about you, Tommy? I actually never liked the Vulcans until Enterprise. And that's when I thought they got interesting. I always felt that they were kind of boring, honestly. I'm mm. sure a lot of people will hate me for that. But I also don't feel like they were really featured enough on the other shows to, to give right. them enough character like Enterprise did. Exactly. That's the thing. Like, I wouldn't say that I didn't like Vulcans going in because I like Spock very much. And I also enjoyed some other Vulcans that we saw, like Valeris and also Savik in The Wrath of Khan. But we really didn't know much about Vulcans, which is one reason why it puzzles me a little bit when fans get really upset at Enterprise for doing something different with the Vulcans, because it's not like they were Klingons or Cardassians or some race that had been fleshed out quite extensively that we knew a lot about. They were almost, they're not a blank slate, but we we essentially knew about one Vulcan who, as you guys have said, was actually a half Vulcan and very little else about them other than that they're logical and that they don't lie. I would agree with that. And it's not that I would say that I would had I had like active hatred for the Vulcans or anything. Well, Tommy, I've I seen just, your 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 poster that says "No Vulcans" there on on your studio. <laughs> None allowed, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> um, I I just I I never really thought they were that interesting. I guess I should say, yeah. Until Enterprise came around, and it's testament to the actors that they were able to play them to the part where they were logical and no emotion, but they still seem so freaking arrogant a lot of the time, mm-hmm. which is one of their interesting traits to me. Yeah. I'm really glad that you said that you kind of found them boring in a way. Cause I, I feel like no one says that when you think about TOS, I think a lot of the moments that come up are Vulcan. You know, you think of, um, you know, Spock and Kirk battling <laughs> in, in during some mating rights. And you think of, you know, there, there's these moments that come up, they're iconic and, and, and certain lines of Spock, but it's really about a character. And there's not much else to the culture. And they're really, in, in TOS, they're just a counterpoint to humanity. They're not their own thing. It's It's another take on things. And it's sort of an offshoot of, you know, stoicism from the 50s uh, that was, you know, the sort of manly ideal at that time. And it's um, the limitations of that, I think, is part of what they were exploring, too. And I think it's just partly the style of TV at the time, too, where it was more about the story of the week rather than creating a canon or an overarching story for your show. You just wanted to tell a good 50 minute story. And so they weren't, I don't think, as necessarily interested in creating a Vulcan culture or race that right. they could reference later on down the line because there was no later on down the line. Exactly. And the place where we would have gotten that culture and the development of Vulcan society would have been through, say, TNG or DS9. But when they went into TNG, they intentionally stayed away from the Vulcans because they wanted to make that series its own thing and not fall back on familiar races. And they eventually did go back to some familiar races, but Vulcans weren't one of them. You you get to see a few Vulcans here and there, kind of token Vulcans, 
in Star Trek so that we don't forget that they were one of the founding members of the Federation. And so naturally there, there would be Vulcans on the ship, but otherwise not much there. The other thing about our preconceived notions of what Vulcans were like going into Enterprise is that we became more familiar with characters like Tuvok, who were just so purely logical and even the evolution of Leonard Nimoy's portrayal of Spock in the films, where, and especially after he died and he came back, and so his mind was very much Vulcan at that point, and he had to learn how to not be so mechanical. We forget that the Spock of the original series, especially season one Spock, actually was rather emotional. He He's not the cut and dry, logical Vulcan that that we all think of as Vulcans. And when you look at it that way, it can also serve as a bridge between the Enterprise era in the 22nd century and then the 24th century time period when we get to people like Tuvok. In a way, Spock is sort of a transitional point between a somewhat more emotional Vulcan and this Vulcan who's just... I'm not going to say they've wiped out their emotions because we know Vulcans have emotions, but they've just learned to completely suppress them, apparently with the help of copious amounts of candle wax. (laughs) That's what I use whenever I'm in a bad mood. Candle wax. Yeah, yeah, me too. Of course, I, I... you know, I, I learned it from Guinan first, and then Tuvok and T'Pol just reinforced it for me. Good role models. So let's move beyond our, our preconceived notions and just look at where Vulcan society came from. So they were very, very violent, as we've been told a number of times. They almost wiped themselves out in wars. And then Surak came along and started teaching this message of logic and suppression and control of emotions. And that really saved the Vulcans from annihilation. And not all Vulcans were happy with that. And so some of them left the planet. And that's where the Romulans come from. Some some of those who left settled Romulus. They also settled other planets as well. I was going to bring up people like the Mintakans who are proto-Vulcans. They're interesting because T'Pol says that Vulcans evolved on that planet, and yet you have these proto-Vulcan cultures that we find around places that seem to, to, they have to have space travel to get off the planet, right? Unless you try to tie it in with the, the seeding of the oceans, you know, with the the uh, the first race and, and such. So anyway, Surak is there. They come to follow his teachings, but eventually they lose their way. Now, that's the time of awakening. But over time, we get to the 22nd century, and we start to find Vulcans who seem to have, maybe in Vulcan society, it's viewed as being progressive. I don't know, but they have moved away from Surak's teachings, and we see more militaristic and antagonistic Vulcans in Enterprise. So, Tyler, this is what we saw in Broken Bow. These are the Vulcans that we saw when there, when Archer comes in and and finds out that there's a Klingon there on Earth, or a Klingot, whichever it is. <laughs> so, what were your impressions when you saw these Vulcans for the first time? 
I don't want to say off-putting because that's not quite it, but I, I see why people had that feeling. Um, you do feel a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, it, it just it just kind of throws you off because you're not sure where they're coming from and you're not sure, you, you know, when, when Vulcans are introduced before that, they're sort of the saviors of, of Earth in a way. They're going to show up and you're, you know, you guys have warp technology now, so we're now going to be your friends. And you just think, great. So it went from there to Spock and it was a clean line and everything, um, you know, was happy and dancing in the street or however you want to put that. But in reality, I kind of like the fact, once I warmed up to it, I like the fact that the Vulcans weren't necessarily taking that route. I mean, they were a reserve culture. They they had known about humans probably for a long time and had thought, well, we're not going to go talk to them yet. They're not ready. And so, of course, that the next step, they're going to take that same approach um, when it comes to actually exploring the galaxy and each one of those other little pieces that, that they that they move through. The other thing I'd like to point out, too, that I think is interesting is, you know, Spock and Tuvok are two Vulcans. And so I feel like if you brought 10 more into the room to say that they're all going to be the same is really a boring race. It's, even right. if they're logical, they shouldn't have the same personality. So it feels like as soon as I realized that, I thought, oh, okay, so there's a bunch of different kinds of Vulcans. This is great. They're not, they're not just this wall of logic who all act the same. And if you just switch, switch one out for another, they do the exact same thing in the same situation. Yeah, that's how I see it too, Tyler. If just because you have two, I mean, if if you and I went to Vulcan and we were the only two humans on Vulcan, I mean, we're not exactly alike, right? And even if we did do everything the same, we wouldn't be representative of an entire race. I personally, when I saw Broken Bow and I saw these Vulcans, I kind of had the same reaction. Like you said, it kind of throws you a little bit, right? Like these are Vulcans. They don't seem like Vulcans. But then you think, wait a minute, I only know a couple of Vulcans. So this is interesting. They're actually making this a real race where you have multiple people and we're going to get to see different sides of them perhaps. But of course, you don't know immediately if that's what they're going to do in Broken Bow because they could have just been making the Vulcans act like jerks just to give humans a hard time and to set the story in motion. You know, I think Vulcans are always a bit uncomfortable, though, when you think about it. Because you can make a joke to a Vulcan and they just kind of stare at you. Uh-huh. So there's always, you know, even later, I think there's this sort of, uh, you know, if if you were to meet Vulcans for the first time, it wouldn't be this pleasant experience, I don't think. And I wonder if coming into Enterprise as a non-Trekkie, if they would have that same experience of, as being off-putting because you're used to a certain type of Vulcan. Probably not, yeah. See, that's an interesting point because I know a number of people who are just Enterprise fans. They're not Star Trek fans in particular. They had not seen any other series coming in. They just saw Enterprise. And then, yeah, that's a completely different situation of how you take these people. Well, it also gives you somewhere to go with the story, which I think is really important. One of the things about TNG that always bothered me, I love that show, you know, to death, just in case I'm heading off the hate mail. Um, <laughs> I love that show. But but really, it started with everybody's great. Everybody gets along. Everybody's peaceful. And this, what do we do? You know, we have a counselor if we have a problem. And there, there weren't inherent conflicts from the beginning. Um, and that was also storytelling of that time. It was very much a, a product of the era. But 
what do you do with that? You know, they had to find those later and they had to find character growth later for, for characters who essentially came into the, um, came onto the screen fully formed. There wasn't a whole lot of growth to do in the, those first few seasons, especially. Right. Well, I think that goes to, again to the whole issue of where Vulcans came from with the original series and, you know, how there wasn't really a fleshed out culture or dynamic there because even more so than with TNG in the original series, um, you know, especially back in that area of the 50s and the 60s, it was there was certainly no consideration of any kind of continuing story. It was all procedural. And there was a little bit of that, especially towards more so towards the end of TNG. But, you know, even when we got to the last show, Voyager, they weren't really doing it. And it wasn't until Enterprise and where you get a more modern TV audience that wants a deeper story that can, you know, carry them along. And I think that, I I think that has a lot to do with, um, their decision to change the Vulcans a bit in Enterprise. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And the other, there's something else I forgot to say a minute ago too, which is Vulcans for as much as, as maybe they don't come across as funny, have some of the funniest moments of, in all of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. that's true. <laughs> you know, it's and some of it's the fact that they don't take jokes. I mean, what is it? Um, uh, is it Ambassador Saval? I might be getting his name wrong, but there's a line where um, they say to him, "You know, you, you didn't really let me know that you cared about humans," and he essentially says, "Oh, thank you." Right, and so that's oh, yeah, a really that funny moment. He says yeah. that, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I think it's I think it's Trip he's talking to, and that's you know that's a really truly funny moment that plays on the fact that they aren't jovial you know and i think it really works and they do sort of have a dry sense of humor and maybe that's not emotion to them i'm not sure um obviously the writers need some room to play around well i was thinking tommy when you said that if you tell a vulcan a joke they just stand there i'm just picturing though they have this great emotional control i think they're really laughing their asses (laughs) off inside yeah they're just not letting you know (laughs) right (laughs) That's a scary Maybe idea. Sort of I'm just imagining the internal the internal life of a Vulcan while you're talking to them. They're thinking about how you smell. They're laughing. It's great. But then they just have to meditate a few more hours, though, to, because of how funny I am. You know, <laughs> right. I have to to help them control their emotions more. They have to meditate more. I must meditate on the joke I heard earlier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Until it's not funny anymore. <laughs> yeah. You talked about how they have somewhere to go with the story. And one thing that I do see with the Vulcans in Enterprise is that this is a race that really has an arc from beginning to end because they are set up in the beginning to be very different. And when we get to, by end, we have to say fourth season here, I always feel weird because you could look at Enterprise as being, here is a TV show that runs four seasons because there are TV shows that run four seasons. But because we're so used to seven seasons, I always think of it like we were interrupted, like everything was just cut off. And and I, I guess most people feel that way as well. And the writing kind of feels that way too. Like they're, they know they're being canceled, yet they're setting up all this stuff that just makes you want to know what comes next, but you're never going to get it. But anyway, in the fourth season, you know, we get the Cyrenite trilogy and and we see them being put back onto a path that leads to the Vulcans that we know from the 23rd and 24th century. 
So we have a very clear progression through these four seasons of Enterprise for the Vulcan race that they have strayed from teachings. And of course, we don't really, it's not set up that we used to be the way that you think of us and we've deviated off that path and now we're something different. It isn't really set up like that. So you might think that they were just always these jerks, but they really weren't. We find out later that they actually have started down another path. And then by having Archer rediscover the cure Shara and bringing Surak back into the story, and by having the militaristic Vulcan High Command and the this sort of government control over this society as well, where they're leading the society away from the what do you want to call it? I don't want to call it, it's not a religion. I mean, it's kind of like a spirituality or just sort of, I always think of Vulcans more like spirituality here in Asia where I live, like Buddhism and such, where it's more like a connection with nature and the universe. It's not like um, an organized, it's not like a um, religion where you're, right. you have a deity at the head. They still wouldn't call it spirituality though, I don't think either. Mm, yeah, probably not. It doesn't feel right. I don't know either. if there is a good term for it, honestly. Yeah. But whatever whatever the term would be, that seems to be being pushed out of the society by the Vulcan High Command during the 22nd century. And by having them, by having this group, the Cyrenites, who are rebelling against that and want to have a return to ideals, which are what we associate with the Vulcans, and having that internal conflict within the society really helps to give substance to the Vulcans here and to create this arc. You know, there's something else I hadn't thought about till you, till you were saying that, Chris, which is interesting. The Vulcans are a really great narrative device because they don't tell you anything. Hmm. So you have to discover it over time. And it, it really puts you in a position to be learning things piece by piece, you know, even going back to Spock, he didn't want to talk about certain things and then he would have to um, because something something would inter- intervene in the plot. And so you'd learn a little something about him. And that's sort of a through line in Enterprise, definitely, where, you know, it's like pulling teeth to find out anything. But once you do, sometimes there's a flood of information that that you learn. And, and it's really great for pacing a story along. That's part of being that logical person, too, that you, I guess you would only have, you'd have this idea of, I'm only going to reveal what needs to be revealed. It's looking at it like a Vulcan would look at it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Why would you need to know that? That, I think that's a question they're meditating a lot. (laughs) So Vulcans live their lives on a need-to-know basis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. It's... It's like with their emotions, too. Like They're suppressing the information that they share with outsiders. Right, and you get a very clear picture of that, too, when Trip goes back to Vulcan with T'Pol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's... And Vulcan culture is just so different and so alien to him. And, you know, and, and the way that T'Pol interacts with her mother about Trip and about Koss, it's all just this very closed-off kind of segregated emotionally and and with the information you share kind of society. 
And the only way that you find out is by being brought onto the inside when you know how to fix all the gadgets in the house, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) Well, so here we're talking about the culture as a whole and the struggle between the government and certain groups within the society who don't agree with one another about the, the course that the planet is taking and that the society is taking. And of course, that mirrors our real life here today and pretty much any time in history and probably any time in the future as well. Another thing that they did with the Vulcans on Enterprise is they flat out gave them emotions. You know, you've got this group, you've got the Vatosh Katur, who is this group that have rejected logic and they're actually actively seeking out the experience of emotions. These are the people that we meet in Fusion. What did you guys think about having these Vulcans that are just like, I want to experience the world of emotions? Well, you know, earlier I mentioned that when when Spock was introduced, it was really to highlight things about humanity. It was a way of examining ourselves and a part of ourselves. And I really like that because this is, you know, when you're talking about different groups of Vulcans, now you're using that as a, as a reflection of the broader culture. And so... It's not all about humanity. This is a bone I have to pick with some Star Trek, which is it all comes back to humanity. If you've got to solve a problem, the way to do it is to be as human as possible, right? And yeah. so it's all a reflection of who we are, you know, whether Klingons or you know our angry side or however you want to put that. But once you start having differentiation within a culture, it's reflecting on the own cult on its own culture. And I think that's a much more interesting story to tell. And I care a lot more, to be honest, because it's not all about us. Right. Well, when you said reflecting on humanity, I mean, my first thought when you were saying that is that that's what science fiction is. It's it's us talking about ourselves and humanity. But then I understood exactly where you were going with it. So when you do create this diversity within the Vulcan culture, as you're saying, then it becomes about that society. But then it starts to work again as science fiction because you can take all of our humanity and put that on Vulcan. Talk about them internally as a culture when we can talk about ourselves that way. And we have these kind of things in our own society too. You know, we people that would, that the, I guess the normal culture would look at and would find to be very jarring and very, uh, uncomfortable even in a lot of ways and i think you can even find that sometimes just by crossing the ocean and Mm -hmm. and, you know just seeing the way they live in in europe versus america or asia versus america and europe and so on um and so then again you just you are again asking the same questions from humanity except using the vulcans to do it i think but you're also exploring the vulcan culture too which is part of the fun of storytelling and sci-fi and imagination. Exactly. Yeah, Archer has a really great line in there somewhere that I think is interesting that kind of highlights all of this stuff, which is they're talking about Surak and all the different groups and what they believe based on what he said. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul basically says, you know, well, are, are you making fun of us because you're, you're saying right. that people take this differently? And he says, no, this sounds familiar. Yeah. And you look at the way people oh, yeah. use the Bible, you look at the way people in the U.S., you know, use the Constitution to highlight whatever they think the Founding Fathers meant, and they they mean yeah. opposite things. You know, that, that whole thing is a really relatable issue. And again, that's why I like the Vulcans better here, because they're not just one 
culture. You know, they're not homogenous. You're really seeing differentiation and internal conflict. And just because you're, yeah. you're logical doesn't mean you don't have internal conflict and arguments about the way things should be handled. Right. Yeah, because any document or, or guiding book or anything is always open to interpretation. That's just the nature of how our minds work. And, and that that is an interesting thing, too, that I think should would be interesting to see played out in Enterprise with the discovery of the Kirshara. Then how do people start interpreting the actual words of, uh, of, of Sirach? You know, and even though they're his actual words, you could still take them different ways. I mean, it's even like today's culture. We have thousands of different versions of Christianity who all believe that the Bible is God's literal handwritten. Some don't believe it's his word, but even the ones that do, they all have different interpretations of what they believe to be written by God. Well, what's also interesting there, too, is the fact that, of course, the Bible has been translated over and over again, and you know, it wasn't written in English, but yet that's how it's being interpreted by many people now. And so with the Kirshara as well, they're rediscovering the actual Kirshara after right. all of these millennia. And so I can picture that Sirach's teachings and his words have been written over and over and translated into different dialects of Vulcan or different languages on Vulcan. And, you know, that's something they never go into, which would have been very fascinating if they had. But even if the original was lost for so long, when you make a copy of a copy of a copy, things change. You know, you play the old telephone game like we used to do when I was in school at the lunchroom table, and things change. And so, like you say, how will they interpret the words of Sirach when they're seeing the actual original again, possibly for the first time in thousands of years? It's interesting to think about because it'd be like, what you know, if today, if we ever found the very first version of one of the Gospels, you know, what, how would people react to that? How different might it or might it not be compared to what we find in a modern mm-hmm. Bible? Right. Which, like you said, it's like, it's like a game of telephone. It's been so translated and copied by different scribes and different times and and things have been added, taken out. It's... This and is some the kind things of are just simply need. mistranslated. Like it's right, an unintentional yeah. change, but it's just yeah, an improper translation. Yeah. And these are the kind of things that are great for extended fiction, too. You know, that Oh, yeah, you definitely. Don't, you don't have time for necessarily in your weekly 40-minute show to go into all the different translations of the Kirshara. And, but it's really fascinating to see what that would be like. What was the language on Vulcan all those years ago? Well, Tommy, we'll wait after you finish Horizon. We'll watch your next movie, Kirshara. Right, yeah. All about the history of the I can go Axonar style, actually, and we'll do a documentary. Oh, that and, would be uh, cool. Yeah. That actually would be cool. From history Channel standpoint. special, the Kirshara. I like it. <laughs> Let's talk to Alec about that. That's actually a good idea. <laughs> it is. Well, bringing it back around here to the Vatosh Katur and their exploration of emotions, I think that... As weird as that seemed the first time that you saw it on Enterprise, the idea that there are these Vulcans out there who are trying to get in touch with their emotions, it makes perfect sense. Everything that we've just discussed here about how different people would interpret things differently, it's only natural that on Vulcan 
And I would think even in the 24th century on Vulcan, there must be groups of people who want to explore their emotions. You know, the one thing that upset me about that episode, that really should have been a TOS episode. Because imagine that same theme (laughs) on TOS. They would have been laying around eating grapes and it would have been like (laughs) just (laughs) a whole different set. They wouldn't have been able to take it nearly as seriously. I think it could have been, that actually would have been a really fun episode on TOS. I, I liked it in Enterprise too, but... Um, a totally different take. Spock would have said, Spock would have said, Christine, you want to come in here? Come on. Come on in. The water's just right. <laughs> All right. So, well, that's where we are with them. And coming back to the government part and the militaristic part, when we get into the fourth season and what we see in the Cyrenite trilogy, is the sort of militaristic approach of the Vulcan High Council towards their neighbors as well. You would think that they would have learned from conflicts in the past because we know we don't know exactly when it happened but at some point apparently the Romulans and the Vulcans fought a hundred year war against each other and the Vulcans and the Andorians don't get along they have this sort of uneasy relationship and coexistence and now you've got the and this is soon before I mean relatively soon before in the timeline the founding of the Federation you've got the Vulcans preparing to actually invade Andoria. Did you see that as sort of the, what if, uh, here's a what if scenario. What if Archer had not rediscovered the Kirshara? Is this a breaking point for Vulcan society? Do you think that people might have gone back to the teachings of Sirach? Would the Cyrenites have somehow prevailed even without the assistance of humans, as it turns out, coming back to the human-centric nature of Star Trek storytelling, Tyler? That's an interesting question. And the first thing I think isn't even about that. I just think there's no Federation, or at least it's a long ways out, because now there's you know two factions at war. And, you know, one of the things that was going to be highlighted, um, hopefully, in the other seasons of Enterprise, if they had happened, was was the Romulan War. And we did see Romulan influence uh, was going on sort of behind the scenes during all of this. So it it just it really doesn't feel like they're heading that direction. And it feels like whether the Surinites win out or whether somebody else wins out, it's it's just a long ways before anything cohesive happens. They're, they're either going to be um, you know, even, let, let's say that Velas continues what he's doing and there's a, a war going on and they're militaristic society and then there's sort of an upheaval. Well, then there's a power vacuum that's going to take 100 years to figure out it as well. Mm-hmm. I think we would have seen an alliance with the Andorians, maybe even some sort of federation or something with them because the relationship that Archer had with Shran that was growing over time um, I think proved to be very beneficial to their to the Vulcans getting back to the right path and eventually forming the Federation too. And it's interesting the line in Home episode two, episode three of season four, when Archer says about the Andorians that he got more help from them than they ever did from the Vulcans. Right. And I think we for sure would have seen probably Earth take eventually take the Andorian side in that conflict because they were wrongly attacked. Yeah, even even the way that it played out, there was it was one moment of Trip deciding to put the uh, the NX01 between two warring factions as opposed to picking a side right. that that helped determine the outcome as well. So it was it's 
it's a really fine line. There's a lot of things. If anyone would have, have tipped the other way, who knows what would have, what would have happened? He eventually did pick a side though, because I think he did fight with Shran against the Vulcans for a short time, didn't he? Before the High Council called it off. Yeah, just briefly. So that's an interesting idea, Tommy. So you're suggesting that Earth and Andoria, at least, and who knows who else might have come in, may have founded the Federation with the Vulcans being on the outside for a while, but perhaps eventually coming into the fold? Maybe, depending on how the ensuing conflict turned out. Um, Because I think what we saw was that kind of situation where the other members of the... Uh, the high command weren't comfortable with what Velas was doing, but they were still going along with it. They were still following orders. And right. depending on how long they put up with that and how many people turned out to be like Saval, where they would actually stand up to them and do the right thing, I think would have had a huge impact. And then there's always, too, the issue of the Romulans lurking behind the scenes and how are they going to try to continue to play all the sides against each other. Well, let's not forget that at the end of that story, there is that scene in the cave where we do have the Romulan who suggests that there is some movement towards reunification. So depending on who prevailed, maybe the Vulcans and the Romulans, you could even see a situation where you have a human Andorian federation and then you've got Vulcans and Romulans on the other side, sort of like right. an uh, Axis allies or NATO Warsaw Pact or whatever type of scenario that you want to uh, come up with. Now, that would be an interesting alternate universe. This is interesting. I haven't really thought about these topics, though. But then I can see, like you're saying, Tommy, depending on how long other people within the high command put up with those like Velas would depend on how long they might... S- go down that path. And then Tyler, as you said, it could set up something that might take even a hundred years to play out where I think ultimately, because it's true, there, there were those who were very uncomfortable with the invasion of Andoria, but they knew they couldn't just speak up right there on the spot because then, well, they would be taken away or killed. So they have to figure out when is the right time to do it. But, when would that happen and would they wait too long? You look at cultures here on Earth where people wait too long to rise up and then they can't. And then when people do rise up before it's too late, it always takes significant time. And of course, there's a lot of bloodshed along the way, which would have no doubt happened on Vulcan as well. I think it would depend on how they approach the humans too, because I think you could see that clearly the, the high command was much less comfortable with firing on Enterprise because there was absolute... The Andorians is something you can almost kind of justify. You know, it's like whenever you hear a news story about some terrible thing that happened in in the war. And a lot of times you can almost kind of justify, oh, well, they're the bad guy or they might be the bad guy. But if we accidentally fired missiles on London you know, or did it on purpose, you know, there's, how would you ever justify that? Right. And I think it's that same kind of thing that they might have a harder time entering a conflict with earth. And that would also potentially cause them to rise up too. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it, you know, any society, and I think Vulcans are susceptible to this even more so because they're so long lived and, and patient 
they're not really quick to action and they they tend to sort of go along with certain kinds of things and, and when you have a a slow change over time sometimes you don't notice that you're transforming and that's how a lot of these militaristic dictatorships have been formed is one step at a time and, and you yeah. you know at some point the straw that breaks the camel's back comes and it's it's too late to move back and i feel like that's what i was seeing from a lot of the vulcans because velas I mean, he was more emotional than the Vashkatur were, right? Yeah, right. And it was really obvious. And the fact that they weren't calling him on it um, just just says that they're uncomfortable with change in that way. Well, the Vashkatur were more like people. I don't really like the analogy, but in in respect to, like you said, Velas was more emotional than they were. He was someone who's just lost control, I think. He's just emotional and he didn't seem to really be able to control his urges Whereas the Vitash Couture were almost like recreational drug users, right? With emotion being the drug. They're experimenting with experiencing those emotions, but they weren't completely controlled by those emotions. Well, of course, the yeah, way the that... space hippies. Yeah. <laughs> and the way that they, they played that too in the show was, was liking, likening it to the, uh, in, in a lot of ways, to the homosexual community. And that it's this sect of society that yeah. the the over the, that the majority doesn't approve of, but it's for bad reasons. And then Velas would be like, you know, the Ted Haggard of Vulcan, who's you know he's always going out at you like anti-gay rants, and then he gets caught with you know a gay stripper and on meth. And, you know, I, I, I feel like if we're, if we're really overextending the analogy, which is what I love to do, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's where it would go. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's a huge overextension, at least, uh, you know, with the Vashkatar, cause they're, I mean, that was an AIDS analogy, right? Yeah. That was very intentional and literal. Well, that was in it with Pinar syndrome. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what Tommy is going at here is that, the exploration of emotion with it being something that isn't what's considered the norm by Vulcan society as a whole would be the analogy to homosexual community. Right. And then the Pinar syndrome was a very clear analogy of HIV because it was actually done during the HIV awareness campaign that would, that was taking place there. So you have those two things together. Well, and I think there's a, a little further step to take there too, in that, the Vulcans are a very provincial society mm-hmm. and not fitting in is not acceptable. Right, right. And so it's, you know, mind melding. The list goes on and on of things that really you, you can't do. And and one emotion they show a lot is pride at not having emotion. Um, sort of an ironic thing. And it's sort of a competition of who's less emotional. And then they end up sort of strutting about it. And then, um, of course, they're, they lost. Um, but, you know, that's that's also the 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 food the food for a dictator as well. If you've got internal a group that you can internally look at, oh yeah, and and blame for things. Um, external ones are great too, but somebody internally, then you know you can whip people up to to support you. Yeah, the people with the emotions are the reasons why our big city just got hit by a hurricane, right? You know, that, right. that right. kind of blame, deal. blame yeah, blame it on them. And not only that, but the Kirshara, that's that's probably why he doesn't want to find it. Because as long as they don't find it, he can say whatever he wants about Strike. Right. And he can, mm-hmm. yeah. he, can oh, bend, exactly. he can bend that to his will. Yeah. 
Well, let's close out with that, with the Kirshara. This is the Reformation. So Archer finds the Kirshara. They bring it there to the council chamber, the high command. They open it up. Beautiful effects, by the way, where we get to see the the text of the Kirshara. And then Vulcan society moves forward from there. And we don't get to see it because the series ends. But that's the moment where... If we stick with the four seasons, the arc of the Vulcans reaches its its conclusion on air within Enterprise. They're set up as being these different Vulcans who have become more emotional and antagonistic. And over the course of the series, we see them experimenting with emotions. We see them warmongering. We see them lying. And here they get back on this path and they move forward with the Kirshara and with Tapal, and they're going to eventually become the Vulcans that we know. You know, it's funny when I see the Kirshara, this is sort of a side note. It always just looks like a giant clothes iron to me. Does it? <laughs> like they're going to iron their Vulcan robes with it somehow. Well, they're going to um, iron the emotions out of themselves. Right. <laughs> right. Ironing out your emotions. That's a great product choice for Trekkies. You know, you could really market that. The uh, oh. the, the hot iron in the shape of a Kirshara. Yeah. It the, comes it comes the, in a two-pack with the Enterprise pizza cutter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. From Think right. Geek. The Think That's, Geek Kirshara right. iron. I like it. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and with the, auto steam action. Yeah. <laughs> and the Klingon cookie cutter. <laughs> right. You know, but the thing about the Kirshara, I, I think... It's obviously very important to the story and to the narrative and to the Vulcan culture. But let's not forget that Surak is there. He's he's moving through people's heads and he can speak right. That's that's for true, himself yeah. for, for yeah. any misinterpretations or for things that didn't you know, weren't necessarily covered, just like in the Bible, people argue about how it would apply to today. And the Kirshara, I'm sure there's something that's gonna come up that's different all those years later. But then you have the question of can you trust the person who's head Sirach is in right are they telling the truth about what his views would be and so on well i think beyond are they telling the truth are they capable of accurately right. conveying the message because how much you know we saw how when spock put his katra into dr mccoy we saw yeah. how those two things sort of work together and McCoy wasn't really himself. It, it seemed like sometimes Spock would just come out, and then sometimes it's Dr. McCoy. So how does it mix there? So how, how accurate is the information that's coming from Surak as he's passed along? And, and is that a game of telephone? You know, does like right. Surak's Katra get more and more diluted as it's passed from person to person over time? Or does it the get Katra better? Bud, or right. does it get better? Yeah. Yeah, who knows? The Contra was a cool thing to see, too, by the way. When when you think about it in terms of Star Trek Three, especially, uh, in the end of Star Trek Two, and then they go from an Enterprise to totally not believing in that mm-hmm. to to really realizing that plot point, and you get to see that develop. And if you're a Trek, you think, oh, hey, that's where that came from. Right. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I too. did, too. All right. Well, any final thoughts on Vulcans on Enterprise? How about you, Tyler? Um, I have a few. I, you know, one of the things, it's my love-hate relationship with some of the, the other alien cultures is that, it, it, I said it before, everything comes back to humanity. If the Vulcans could just be more human, you know, they would 
they they figure it out and they do great. And you can see it every time there's an argument to be made and humans are talking to Vulcans, they never seem to take the logical approach. They get really emotional and try and convince them. <laughs> and um, it it's 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 strange to me. And so I really like this course correction in the sense that um, it's more realized as a real culture. And our role in it was not our humanity that saved Vulcan. It was Vulcan saved themselves. And yes, there was a human there who's able to do things Vulcans couldn't, but that's because he was an outsider. And so I really like the take that they had on it. And I, and I like that quite a bit because I, I just get so annoyed if, you know, um, when the other situation comes up and there's an alien race and it's not their alienness that does something, it's their humanity that does something mm-hmm. in the story or for their culture or whatever that, that, you know, that plot point is. Well, how about you, Tommy? Any final thoughts? Uh, not really that I can think of. I think, you know, pretty, pretty well covered it from top to bottom. Didn't like them before. Liked them afterwards. Vulcans, that is. Yeah, I'm, I liked them just fine before, but I, I think I've covered pretty much all the bases as well in the discussion today. I think that fans who see the Vulcans in Enterprise and get upset about the way that they are portrayed should just try watching it, keeping in mind that they've strayed off the path. We're seeing them at a point where they're kind of lost in the wilderness and there's an internal conflict going on. And then at the end, we see them getting back on the path to where we think they should be or where we know them as being in later Star Trek on the timeline. And and if you look at it that way, I actually think it's very interesting writing that was done on Enterprise. Oh, I do too. I don't think enough people give things like that a chance. You know, they see one thing that's that that they think is off or or incorrect mm-hmm. and they just kind of dismiss it then, not willing to understand that maybe the writers have a plan for what they want to do with these characters yeah. to get them back to where they are. Right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me today, guys, both of you. Tyler, where can people find you if they want to talk Enterprise and Star Trek with you? Well, uh, I don't know if we're going to plan another show on the air again. Maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll do, do it, it off the, off the air, air this, this week. <laughs> but you can find me on Warp 5 and, and some other shows around the network here. Uh, proud to be a part of this. And if you want to look me up on Twitter, you can find me at Flintastic. It's F-L-Y-N-T-T-A-S-T-I-C. Right. Two T's in the middle there. That trips me up originally i think there's someone else maybe with one t yeah i don't like that guy (laughs) (laughs) well tommy where can people find you and give us a quick update on horizon your enterprise film horizon is going well uh i'm working i just got the new video blog out with lots of cool information where we talked about the success of our kickstarter and um and showed a new shot of the discovery the main ship of the film clearly in a bad way um and right now as we speak what i have up in the background is i'm working on a scene in engineering so it's uh it's been going well and you know if anyone's interested in checking that out you can find us slash me since it's pretty much me on facebook.com slash st horizon or star trek horizon.com uh i also have the twitter which is at Tommy G Dog D A W G. There I said it. Just you know that that's my thing. I don't tweet that often though, so hope you're not disappointed. 
Are but you that's telling us you were it. editing in the background during the show? Did I hear that right? <laughs> I said it was up in the background. <laughs> we're working 24-7. I love it. Yeah, oh, yes. 20, 24-7. Yeah, Tommy is always up working to like 3 or 4 in the morning on his Enterprise film. So, Yeah, and if I'm not working on this, I'm working on Axonar. Yeah. So it's one or the other. Both gorgeous, by the way. Yeah, we should point that out too. You you did some work on the Prelude to Axanar trailer, and those visuals were Indeed. just absolutely amazing. Well, thank you. I'm glad I did the uh, I did the compositing and and the CG backgrounds, and I'll be doing all those for the full 22 minute film as well. Wow. So, yeah, it's a lot of work, um, but I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful stuff. And of course, Tobias Richter is oh, doing yeah. that CGI stuff as well. That guy is like, I don't even know. I he's amazing. His work is just yeah. It's always yeah. so good. It's always really just beautiful work, and his his ships are gorgeous, and and I I can gush all night. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. All right, well, thanks again for joining me today, guys. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Well, it's been fun talking about Vulcans with Tommy and Tyler today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network over the past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. With the Slushoverse, a lot of people are wondering, is JJ going to stick Slusho into Star Wars? Earl Grey. It's like Leroy Jenkins, you know, he comes running in. <laughs> Sir, there's another starship entering the zone. It's the Enterprise! <laughs> the Enterprise! <laughs> the Orb. But the, here's the thing, they put themselves in a box with Dax. It's such a cool sci-fi concept to say that the symbiont is the 300-year-old slug and the outer host body, you know, they're, they're mixed together. And that the, the host changes from the... The Ready Room. Because, I mean, what's the alter if you're, if you're not going to do what, what Chris just suggested? I mean, what's he going to do? Get down on his knees and say, oh, emissary, I'm with you now? I mean, <laughs> right, that's right. not really going to work either, right? So Allow me to, to ride my flaming chariot back to Starfleet. To the journey! I am genuinely excited for this week's episode because we are doing a commentary on Threshold. Yes, you heard that right. Threshold, the infamous episode that everybody loves to hate, but I love to love it. Warp 5. But the fact that they had been in so many other shows before, that they literally were pulling footage from Voyager to help flesh out that episode, I think it's sort of like, it's a it's an Easter egg and it's a theme and it's also literally pulling out of another show. Commentary, Trek stars. I feel like he always had the sense that the younger generation had a, a much clearer sense of what the future was going to be like than, than sort of the, the previous one. Melodic Treks. And these theme come on, and I just thought brilliantly tied in with the original series because these were the original series characters, but it was giving it a movie feel. And he just did a brilliant job on his composition. Continuing mission. We have had long discussions in the office about how we can get an appropriate chair sitting simulator into the game. Unfortunately, that's such a specific system that would really only be used by Riker. Literary Treks. And then she leads him back to her place and says, Welcome back to my place. It's a good place to be together. And Kirk says, Together is good. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. 
So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, BlackBerry, Swell, we're even on SoundCloud. Just look up Trek.fm or the name of the show you want to listen to and you'll find us there. We'd also like to take a moment and thank Apple for making us the featured network for their This Week On section on the podcast front page this week. This is an area where Apple spotlights networks each week, and we're really honored to have all 16 of our shows prominently placed in the store. If you're finding Warp 5 for the first time as a result of this, first of all, welcome to the show. We're glad you found us. And I also hope you'll check out all of our other shows. We talk about every Star Trek series, books, comics, science, music, creative beyond Star Trek, and all sorts of things here related to Star Trek on the network every single day of the week. And speaking of iTunes and Stitcher, one thing I want to tell you about today is a new promotion that we're running from now until July 31st. Reviews are very important to us here at Trek Film, not only because we love to hear from you and what you think about the show, but these reviews actually do impact how we place in iTunes and on Stitcher and how people find the shows. Reviews make it easier for other Star Trek fans to find all of our Star Trek discussion. But we know that it does take some extra time to visit iTunes or Stitcher and write these reviews, and usually you're listening to a podcast when you're not at the computer, so you can't just hop on and type. So we want to give you a little extra incentive to go over and share your thoughts on the show. From now until July 31st, every time you leave a review for a Trek Film show, you will be entered into a drawing for some great prizes. These include a season of Star Trek of your choice on Blu-ray or DVD, an official Starships collection ship from Japan, where I am, complete with Japanese magazine, some Star Trek novels, and a full collection of our alien art badges. All you need to do to enter is to leave a review for our show. Now, of course, you can only review each show once, but you can review multiple shows. So if you listen to Warp 5 and you listen to The Ready Room and Earl Grey and To The Journey and Commentary Trek Stars, you can review each one of those and you can review us on iTunes and on Stitcher and each review will get you an entry in the drawing. Winners will be drawn at random from all entries received before midnight Pacific time on July 31st, and there are two steps to entering. The first is to leave a review on iTunes and or Stitcher, and the second is to visit trek.fm slash review and complete the form there. That gives us the information that we need to know to enter you into the drawing. And that's it. All information about the promotion will be there on that page, trek.fm slash review. We look forward to hearing from you, and we really thank you for your support of Warp 5 and the network. Now, someone else we want to thank for support is Audible. Audible is one of our sponsors for today's show. As I tell you every week, they are the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere. They have more than 150,000 titles waiting for you right now, and they add hundreds of new titles every single week. And as a Trek FM listener, we have a special offer for you. You can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a trial to see just how great Audible is. All you need to do is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. Choose whichever book you want, whether it's a great Star Trek book like Prime Directive or Federation, or anything outside of the world of Star Trek. You can get that book, and if you decide at the end of the trial not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. 
But I know if you love podcasts, you're going to love Audible. So go give them a try. It really does help us here at Trek FM to keep Warp 5 coming to you every week. If just one of you tries Audible, it really makes it easier for us to bring the show to you. So go check them out. Audibletrial.com slash TrekFM. And we thank Audible for their support of the show. And we thank you for supporting Audible. Another place that you should visit is TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club. It's a challenge. If you love Star Trek and you want to really be challenged, you need to go to fm.trekfan.org and check out all the qualifications and other things they have going on there. They have a program called Starfleet Academy, which I've told you about in the past, where they will send you a free novel and you just review the novel, pass it on to a friend to read and just send them the novel. They're compiling Star Trek novel reviews there, but that's not all they do. They have many other things there as well, like flight operations, engineering, and communications qualifications. In fact, Samuel Covings of Livonia, Michigan, he just got his technician license, and Teresa Watkins of Atlanta, she just got her flight operations challenge taken care of a couple of weeks ago thanks to TrekFan. And it's absolutely free. You just go there and sign up. It's just a fantastic idea for... I don't even want to call it a fan club. It's a fan club, but it's so much more. Go check it out today and put your love of Star Trek into action at fm.trekfan.org. And that's a special URL, by the way, that lets them know that you heard about it here on Warp 5 and the network. So be sure to use that URL, fm.trekfan.org. And we really thank them for supporting the show as well. Well, thanks again to Tyler and Tommy for sitting in with me today to discuss Vulcans. And if you'd like to share your thoughts with us on the Vulcans, there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can find us on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. On Facebook, we're Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We also have a community on G+. Just search Trek.FM in communities for that. You can also find our forums at Trek.FM slash forums, our contact form at Trek.FM slash contact, which comes to me by email. And you can send us a voicemail through the website as well. If you look in the left sidebar on the show page, you'll see the widget for that. And if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. And elsewhere on the network, you can find me on quite a few shows. I do The Orb with Matthew Rushing, which is about Deep Space Nine, Literary Treks with Matthew about books and comics, and we interview authors. I also do Continuing Mission, where I interview the people who create fan series. In fact, Tommy's been on there with me before to talk about Horizon. I do Matterstream, which is about the world inspired by Star Trek. The Ready Room is our big show with hosts from all around the network, where we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series. And Hyperchannel is where I bring you some Star Trek news every single day. So tune into those shows if you'd like to hear some of my other thoughts on Star Trek. Well, thanks for listening to Warp 5 today, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for yet another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>